Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings from Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In recent years, the English-speaking world has become wildly enthusiastic about India. India is a trusted ally. India has the world's largest democracy, and it is a democratic counterweight to China. Trade with India always offers a massive economic potential, and a shared heritage history with the British Empire makes it a natural extension of the Anglosphere. Despite these pronouncements, India has continually defied and confounded the expectations of the English-speaking world. Here to discuss if the English-speaking world has an India problem is Dr. Alexander Davis, a New Generation Network Research Fellow with La Trobe University's Department of Politics and Philosophy and the Australia-India Institute. Thank you for joining me, Alex. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Now, I tiptoed quite a lot around the terms English-speaking world and Anglosphere, which came up in your writings. So can we begin by telling me what do you mean by that term and why is it that some countries assume or expect India to be a part of it? Sure. So I tend not to try to define explicitly who's inside and who's outside of the English-speaking world or the Anglosphere. When I use the term, I use it to refer to a set of ideas or a set of narratives that plays a role in in a large number of states' foreign policies. If you wanted to try and define it more broadly, it tends to include just about every place that was colonised by the British. Almost a shorthand for the post-colonial British Empire. But does it present the problem of what qualities they share, what yeah. morals they have, uh, what sort of viewpoints they have? It seems to be a an uncomfortable blanket term in some aspects. It is, absolutely. I'm very uncomfortable with, with some parts of the term, which is why I tend to see it as a set of ideas. Uh, so you're absolutely right. It tends to lead to a set of inclusions and exclusions. So I'm interested in it as a, something that shapes foreign policy, but it's also been used by a set of thinkers and politicians. And the main, the thing that I'm most interested in is the way that they then try to define the idea. And then that's where those inclusions and exclusions come out that you've just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So people tend to start with a so-called core, which is usually the UK and its settler colonies. So that includes the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. They then tend to reach out to India as the largest place in the world where English is spoken you know, almost constantly and try to co-opt India into this space. Mm emphasize things about India that were positives of its colonial experience. So speaking English, they ascribe India's democracy as something that came from the British, which is not really the case. And they emphasize the the benefits of colonization. And that leads to a really uncomfortable conversation with a few (laughs) Indian people. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, the idea that India is part of the English-speaking world is sort of premised on that yeah. uh, excision of all the negatives of its colonial history. You're also asking them to look on the bright side of being a post-colonial country, which I suppose India would be happy to embrace if it benefits them, but at the same time feel slightly uncomfortable about what that means. Yes, and you've started to see some Indian prime ministers, uh, particularly Manmohan Singh, the previous one before Narendra Modi, who use the term English-speaking peoples and argue that Indians were the largest part of the English-speaking world. Mm. And he tried to use it to argue for closer connections between the US, the UK and India. And he got quite a lot of flack for it at home as well. So it's definitely not uncontroversial. (laughs) So I think 
one thing we can say about this sort of English-speaking world concept, idea, uh, is that I've never seen anyone pushing this idea refer to Pakistan or Bangladesh as within it. Mm. Just India. And I think that tells us that this idea at the moment is being animated by fear of Islam. Yes, yeah. And that's made people see India in this light. And so that's something that's been useful to India in terms of engaging with the US and Australia in the last couple of decades. So India has been post-colonial, if I can put it that way, at Mm -hmm. least for about 70-odd years now. So what has shaped its international relations since then? Is being a former British colony still part of it, or is it very much an independent approach? In terms of what's shaped India's foreign policy the most in those 70 years, I'd probably say that there's two sets of ideas, both of which emerged out of that colonial experience. Mm. And I think the interplay between those two ideas has probably been the most important thing for the way that India understands its place in the world. So you've got Nehruvian nationalism, which more or less starts with Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister, who was its first external affairs minister. And then you've also got Hindu nationalism. So there's two competing nationalisms which see India in in very different ways. So Nehru's idea of India is sort of the founding discourse of Indian foreign policy. That's the way that we tend to think about it. And he saw India as a pluralist society that can learn from other cultures, other societies, and uh, other places, other peoples that had come to India, and that included the British, and it also included the Mughal emperors, the Muslim people in India. And India can take in all these different peoples and identities, cultural groups, religious groups, and they are all within India. Mm. And uh, they should be protected, looked after, and India can learn from other places. Hindu nationalism is a response against this that starts in the early 20th century. And it tends to see India as a place that has been conquered and it needs to recover its strength. It's a Hindu-centric society. Uh, Minorities within it need to assimilate into that culture and it needs to sort of recover its martial valour or its masculinity in its foreign policy. So it needs stronger armies. So that's more of a more recent trend then, is it? It's become much more prominent in the last 10, 15, 20 years, and Mm. particularly with the rise of Narendra Modi in the last couple of years. So let's have a bit of a discussion then on how does India approach other countries in the Anglosphere? We'll start with our own one, Australia, where vaguely post-colonial, although we still like to claim a a strong link. We're still a member of the Commonwealth. And I guess India is our brother from another mother when it's convenient to us. (laughs) Yes, yes. So I quite often write uh, Anglosphere in quotation quotation marks, which is a problem for podcasting, actually. (laughs) India was extremely important to Australia's founding, and that's something that Australians aren't necessarily aware of now or weren't necessarily aware of at the time. So when the Australian colonies were founded, they were mostly supplied and resourced from India. Politicians today, particularly um, Tony Abbott did this, John Howard did this, um, Kevin Andrews when he was Defence Minister did this too, liked to draw on that colonial history as saying that it was shared history. Yes. And they would list those colonial wars as that times that Australians and Indians had fought together. So... Uh, Gallipoli, World War II. Mm. There's 
definitely a history there that people aren't necessarily aware of, but the Australians at the moment are trying to draw upon that history uh, to try and tie India and Australia together even more in the future, uh, which I don't think is a particularly effective strategy for engaging with India because Indians were, for the most part, uh, in the 1900s, through to the end of the White Australia policy in particular, Indians were really quite angry with Australia for refusing to allow Indians to settle there. And you look around most of the British Empire uh, and Indians were moved there. Indians travelled within the British Empire, Indians settled in South Africa, in Malaysia, in Singapore. It's not many in Canada, but still more than settled in Australia. Canada had the same sort of restrictionist immigration policies. So it's not a smart strategy to to emphasise that relationship, I suppose. No, no, I I wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> yeah. Has it ever come to a point where uh, Australia and India have been kind of played off against each other and that's been to our disadvantage? Yes, absolutely. This occurred within imperial and then post-imperial forums, like the Commonwealth. There were a lot of imperial forums in which India, when it was still colonised, could actually engage in some limited forms of diplomacy, but only with other societies within the British Empire. Mm. The main thing that India used those forums for was to challenge South Africa's racial policies. So India needed Australia's support to try and condemn South Africa's racial policies. Australia wasn't always on India's side in that fight. So I think the best example comes in uh, in 1954 when Robert Menzies travelled to Johannesburg. South Africa had just instituted apartheid a couple of years earlier, and so it was quite controversial for him to go at all. The South African Prime Minister, D.F. Milan, makes a speech and starts referring to the things that tie Australia and South Africa together. So, shared cultural and racial affinities, shared pioneering histories. You know, these are two societies where Europeans came and they sort of fell in love with the land and they settled and they referred to Australia and South Africa as sisters in the, in the Indian Ocean. But they were mostly tied together, according to Milan, by threats from foreign powers. And he was referring to India. So he um, promised to provide Australia with military assistance when on the inevitable occasion that India would invade Australia. Wow. Indian... South Africa had our back. Yes, against the evil imperialist Indians. <laughs> um, the South Africans were quite convinced at this time that India was an imperialist power. So how did Menzies react? All we have from this is reports that were then sent to London. So there were UK representatives there. Yeah. Menzies stayed very quiet, apparently. So he didn't want to offend the people in the room, but mm. he also didn't want reports saying, yes, this is a concern. We're, wor- we're militarily worried about India. Because yeah. I, don't, I don't think he was. So he just called for Commonwealth unity. Yeah, and breathed a sigh of relief that Twitter wasn't around in 1954. Yes, yes, I think so. (laughs) That would have been trending. (laughs) Yeah. That's Australia then. So what relationship does India have with Britain in the the post-colonial context? And has it been close or is there too much of a shared history for it to be amicable? It was actually surprisingly close immediately after independence, probably closer than India's relationship with Canada or Australia or uh, anywhere else in the former British Empire perhaps other than uh, other colonised peoples. Mm. Some of the UK's first diplomats to independent India found it a very strange place and that they would get a lot of flack from people on the street. There was one in particular, the second High Commissioner to independent India, Terence Schoen, who wrote a dispatch comparing 
India to a wild racehorse that had thrown off its jockey and was sort of careening around the racetrack. But today, still quite a lot of connections. So there's a lot of Indians in the UK. Mm. It's very much on the UK's radar. A lot of tourists go to India. So there's still a lot of people-to-people links. But the UK's changed so much. This is now post-Brexit. Yes. So Theresa May, actually, one of the first stops she made after became Prime Minister, I think it might even have been the first stop, was to go to India and try and very quickly sketch out a free trade agreement. Yeah. uh, Which led to a really interesting response from the Indians. So there's a couple of colonial uh, gripes that come up whenever a UK diplomat or a UK Prime Minister goes to India, and those are the Kohinoor Diamond, which was an Indian diamond taken by the British. It's now in the crown jewels. Oh, yeah, I know that one, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and so they want it back. And so whenever a UK Prime Minister goes there, they try and get that diamond back, and the UK always refuse. They also demand an apology for the Amritsar massacre, which occurred in 1919. The UK tends to refuse any apologies for anything that it did Mm. as a colonial master. Mm. So there are those post-colonial problems between the two states, but Theresa May's attempt to get a free trade agreement was a really good example of how not to engage India. They went there in a rush. They thought, oh, let's get a free trade agreement. This will be fairly easy. But the Indians requested uh, something that they tend to attach to free trade agreements. It was a better visa deal for its citizens. Kind of flies in the face of Brexit. Exactly. So Theresa May had just come to power on the basis of this sort of populist, slightly nativist uprising Mm. and trying to give better visa deals to Indians coming to the UK would have been really problematic for her politically at home. And so she said no, and her counteroffer was, we'll give better deals to Indian businessmen, but they'll also insist on repatriating all Indians who had overstayed their visa in the UK. And so India refused this. Mm. And so it it broke down almost immediately. Yeah, okay. Mm. It sounds like, you know, between both of those, there is the assumption from the Anglosphere that there should be a better working relationship than there mm-hmm. really is. Yeah, exactly. And it's this assumption that's going to hold us back in the future. Yep, there's this very strong pattern of getting very excited about engagement with India, mm. uh, getting disappointed very quickly and then giving up. These overinflated expectations, I think, are actually one of the main stumbling blocks. America is one of the most powerful and influential countries on the planet, and yet it's got the divisive figure of Donald Trump in power. And he Mm. recently met Narendra Modi and got the Modi hug, although it seems like the Modi hug is easily (laughs) distributed. Just about everyone seems to get a hug, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I did a bit of research for this one, actually, to try and get an understanding of how Trump sees India. And I looked back to try and find everything that Trump had done with India before he became a presidential candidate and then everything that he tweeted about India before he became a presidential candidate. I think we can learn from this that he hadn't thought about India that much. And so that means that he he acts towards it on the basis of pretty simple perceptions. He's tweeted using the word India 18 times in his life, 17 times before he became a politician, and they tend to fall into three different categories. The major thing is him tweeting about his luxury hotels and business deals that he's done there. He went to India, I think he went to Mumbai and Pune in 2014, and he tweeted there occasionally about his business deals. He 
told the Indian press on that trip that he sees India as a great place to invest and, quote, I think the election made that even better. He's referring to Narendra Modi. All so right. he And then he had a go at the previous administration for making investment too difficult. So he does see India as a good place to invest and he sees that because of Narendra Modi's election. So he was paying some attention and he started to invest when it became clear that Modi would win the election. Mm. So just before he was elected, once it starts looking like he was going to win. So... He mostly thinks about it as a place to do business. The second most common kind of Trump tweet about India, and there's only a couple of these, is him praising the quality of Miss Universe contestants from India. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there's two or three of those. And the last two are um, him just seemingly randomly responding to Indians tweeting at him to say that India loves you. Oh, So a place that he gets praised from. Yeah. And... The first time he ever tweeted about India was from the 2012 US election campaign when he criticised Barack Obama for using a firm that outsourced jobs to India. Okay. And seeing India as a place that uh, that takes American jobs. All right. But there's other countries that have more of a target on their back for that He's kind of... He's more yeah. worried about China, Mexico, with those kinds of things. Okay. So, <laughs> is India for Trump a missed opportunity then at this point or something that um, he's not making the most well, out of? he very quickly, one of the strangest things out of the US 2016 election was from the Republican Hindu Coalition. So, note, not the Republican Indian Coalition, the Republican Hindu Coalition. There, a lot of Hindu nationalists in India really like Trump. Not all. Uh, I think in terms of the actual vote, he did very badly amongst Indians. But mm. the Hindu nationalist part of the Indian diaspora gave him a lot of money. And a lot of those people also provide a lot of support to the BJP as well. Mm. So the Republican Hindu coalition had a fundraiser for him, which he attended. And the Bollywood dance routine was the sort of the centerpiece of this. It starts off with these Hindu Indians having a wedding, celebrating, dancing. And then they get attacked by some very stereotypically Islamic-looking terrorists. Sure. There's a dance routine terrorizing the guests. Yeah. And then some American Navy SEALs burst in, kill all the terrorists, and dance with the Hindu wedding guests. Oh, my God. So, the um, the symbolism of that is really obvious, right? That Hindu India is allied with America against yeah. Islam. Mm. And that's how Trump thinks. That's what he drew upon. That's what he talked about when Modi was there. They talked about... First of all, we're both very good at social media, so they have a lot of followers on Twitter. Then we're the key allies in fighting terrorism. And that repeats very much with the Hindu nationalist idea of India. In the earliest formation of Hindu nationalism, they saw India, yes, has been invaded by the British, but they've also been invaded by Islam. Mm. And they should ally with the British to kick out Islam. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that's become a really important part of India's relationship with the US. Okay, so... it. Sounds like India's, in international relation terms, is making the best of what it has when it comes to the US. It's probably fair to say. So the US and and Australia talk about India because we're both democracies. We can get along with them. We'll see the world in the same way. But India actually sees engagement with the US as a way of creating a what they refer to as a polycentric world order with multiple poles of power in which India is one of the poles of power. Mm. It's not a sort of coalition of democracies in a in a liberal world order that's dominated by America. They want different things out of world order, but at the moment, India is prepared to ally with Australia, the US, the UK, Canada, but I think there's limited utility in it. So they actually want different things. 
So how does India deal with its uh, immediate neighbours? It's got a, a lot of shared history with, with Bangladesh, with Pakistan, uh, as they were both British India, and yet there's different religions there. And British India would have come up with uh, agreements with its immediate neighbours as well. So what influences how India now deals with its neighbours? Are there close relationships due to this shared history or are there not? Mm. There are some close relationships, but there's also some very difficult ones. So the British intentionally, they like to keep international borders fuzzy. And then India inherited those borders. That's made India's relationship with a lot of places very complicated and difficult. Even the line of partition between uh, India and Pakistan. So Kashmir obviously was very difficult. But even with East Pakistan, current day Bangladesh, there were lots of Indian enclaves on the Bangladeshi side, Bangladeshi Mm. enclaves on the Indian side. And that's taken just decades to sort out. One thing that's interesting about this is which parts of territory they actually inherited from the British. So India inherited most of the colonial bureaucracy. They inherited the capital city, Delhi. Most of the Indian civil service was based there. But Pakistan actually got most of the military installations. And so that led Pakistan to have a massive military and the immediate rivalry meant that that military was very useful. And so Pakistan's military generals became really important to the politics and running of the country. And that Mm. sort of leads Pakistan to act in this sort of stereotypically classical realist fashion (laughs) with the military very important in terms of foreign policy. So what's the situation with China then? Because that sounds like it's a remnant from the old way that India was run. To go back to those fuzzy borders, the, the main point of contention right now last week in particular, this third up is actually in Sikkim, which is a very small Indian state. It tried to be independent from India for the first 20 years of its life. The colonial agreement in which Sikkim was a protectorate of Britain was maintained and Sikkim became a protectorate of India. Mm. And Nehru maintained this relationship, but he, he let Sikkim develop on its own, manage its internal politics as much as possible, but he guaranteed to protect it from China. It actually became part of India in 1975. And Indira Gandhi, Nehru's daughter, did this in a slightly underhanded, sort of aggressive fashion. And so the Chinese actually sort of drew on the South African playbook and in a sort of trollish manner, as a way to, to annoy India as much as possible. The Chinese media referred to this as evidence of India's imperialism. Yeah, okay. But this is yeah. partly because India inherited those colonial borders. China is right now engaged in building roads and developing what it says is part of China, but what India says is part of Sikkim. And it's very near the border, and so it's not entirely clear where that border is and whether or not China is making an incursion into Indian territory. And so that fight over the borders is something that also happens in Kashmir and in northeast of India. And that's mostly down to colonial agreements. So they fight over these agreements that were made by the British in the late 1800s. That's one thing that I'll be keeping my eye on over the next couple of months, especially as I'm planning to go to Sikkim at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Just make sure you know which side of the fuzzy border you're on. I think I'll stick to the capital city, which is pretty clear. (laughs) (laughs) That's all the time we've got for the podcast today. Uh, My thanks to Alex. Thank you for being the guest today. Thanks, mate. It's uh, very good to be here. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave a review. 
and spread the word. You can follow Alexander Davis on Twitter. He's at Alex E. Davis NGN. And you can follow Latrobe Asia at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.